This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Later in the hour, a pioneer in Neanderthal DNA extraction is one of this year's Nobel Prize winners. We'll review his guest appearances on Science Friday. Plus, why hibernating bears may hold clues to fighting diabetes. But first, it is election season, and you may have your eyes on your state's Senate race, maybe a governor, but you may be surprised to hear that science is also on the ballot. And I just don't mean that some candidates think climate change is a hoax. No, there are over 100 statewide ballot measures scheduled. Coloradans will be voting on decriminalizing and regulating psychedelics and mushrooms, fungi. In Arkansas, Maryland, North and South Dakota, voters will decide whether to legalize marijuana use. Voters in Michigan are debating whether to explicitly protect the right to an abortion. And even officials at the local level, I have to have, they all have a say in science. Like, think about managing power utilities and protecting local wetlands. We're going to talk about all of this, including issues that are not up for a vote, but should be. What do you think? And we're living, we're live in the studio today, which means, yes, we want your calls. Where where, where do you see science on your November ballot? Maybe you don't see science there and you think it should be. You make the call to tell us, but only if you make the call. Our number 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or you can tweet us at SciFry. Let me introduce my guests. Rachel Carestis is Executive Director of Science Is Us at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. She joins us from Jacksonville, Florida. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you. Howard Lerner is President and Executive Director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center that's based in Chicago. Welcome, Howard. Good to join you today, Ira. Nice to have you. You know, I just listed some of the ballot items and I alluded to some candidate matchups. Now we're not here to make any endorsements today. That's not what we're doing. But I do want to help people understand where science is in their election options. How would you begin to explain the the choices voters have in science policy this fall? And Rachel, let me begin with you. Well, I think that's actually a huge question, Ira, uh, because one of the things we work on is trying to bridge that gap between science and policy. And the the thing is, is that science and evidence can actually be employed on almost any public policy issue, even those things that don't seem obvious. So you mentioned uh, just a moment ago some of those local issues, for example, questions of development. How much should we build? Where should we build? Uh, what sort of density should we have in our community? Those are very much decisions that can be driven by science and evidence. And so there's almost every topic you can think of is something that could be science related. Yeah. Science touches everything, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. I, I know that you work at Science is Us to connect legislators to scientists and to help them understand science better. Why does this feel so important to you? It feels important to us, honestly, because we know that there's a gap between scientists and engineers and policymakers. And and we recognize our part in creating that gap. And we think really that science and engineering and evidence can help policymakers make more efficient and more effective decisions. And so it's important to us just because we think we have something useful to offer 
in the policy debate. And that's, as you said earlier, it's a nonpartisan yeah. thing. Science doesn't take sides, but it can help you. And it's a very important tool that any policymaker can rely on. Mm. Howard, I know that your work focuses on environmental issues, especially in the Midwest. Tell me what is at the top of people's minds right now. Uh, right now, protecting safe, clean water for people to drink, climate change, which affects everybody, and the Great Lakes. And on two of those, it really is getting pretty partisan. So when it comes to safe, clean drinking water, the Supreme Court had a case earlier this week, the Sackett case. The state and the federal governments are fighting on who has jurisdiction to protect wetlands, community waterways, and that's breaking down on something of partisan lines. And it's coming out as an election issue. It's a sleeper issue, but everybody cares about safe, clean water, particularly if you're in western Lake Erie, toxic algae blooms almost every summer. When it comes to the Great Lakes, it's bipartisan in the Midwest. There really isn't much of a difference. Republicans and Democrats, younger people and older people, everybody loves the Great Lakes. It's where we live, where we work, mm -hmm. where we play. Climate change, we know there's a partisan divide. And in states like Wisconsin, you know, where sound science drives sound policy, Mayor Daley of Chicago famously said, good policy is good politics. Senator Ron Johnson, who's running for re-election, a Republican, uh, is pretty much a climate denier. Um, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who's running against him, a Democrat, is saying climate change is a major challenge for Wisconsin. Governor Pritzker in Illinois, Governor Whitmer in Michigan, are running for re-election on what they're doing for climate change solutions. So that one's getting pretty partisan between the two parties. Uh, but when it comes to water, and particularly the Great Lakes, um, everybody's concerned about it, and we know that sound science drives sound policy. Hmm. We have a, a comment from MJ in Grand Forks, Grand Forks, North Dakota, on the Sci-Fi Vox Pop app. My biggest concern is that the oceans have been warming regularly, yearly, and this causes a lot of commotion in our climate and problems. I don't really care about the ballots. I care about what are people willing to do to stop the oceans from warming up. Yeah. Wow. Rachel, how do you answer that? How do you answer that on a ballot? Well, I think it's a little bit hard to answer specifically on a ballot because, of course, the science behind what's happening in the oceans is very complicated, right? And that's one of the tricks here, right? How do you boil down a, a very complicated scientific question into something that can be actionable public policy, and particularly if it's a ballot initiative, right? But what I think you want to do, and what we try to encourage policymakers to do, is first of all, seek out the evidence. Talk to the experts, hear what they're saying, and figure out how you can put it into context. You know, we work primarily at the state and local government level, and state and local policymakers don't have a lot of bandwidth to tackle a subject, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, like a county, a county commissioner here in Florida, for example, where I live, is not going to solve the problem of how oceans are warming, right? Right. But they they can approach the questions related to their community, asking, "What are the best outcomes I can achieve for my?" community? How can I use science and evidence to influence those outcomes? And then what's my plan to get right. there from, 
from where I'm at now. And so what would surprise people most about that issue that you're working on? Something that may not seem like an obvious place for science and policy, but where you're hard at work, Rachel. Well, I think when it comes to, you know, ocean policy, for example, we spend a lot of time just talking about issues along the coastline. I I mentioned development earlier, but that's a key one. What do we build? Where do we build? How do we build? What kind of infrastructure? What kind of utilities do we rely on? Uh, How do we, you mentioned protecting wetlands earlier. How do we protect the wetlands that we have? So it's all of those sub questions underneath there, which granted makes it very difficult for individual voters to say, I want to vote along the evidence because it's complicated. Right. Uh, 844-724-8255 is our number. Let's let's go to the phones because lots of people would like to uh, jump in here. Let's go to Nolan in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hi, Nolan. Hey, how's it going? Hey there. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of some common sense stuff, but I feel like from an ecology standpoint, um, kind of encouraging people to not have manicured grass from like a policy standpoint, kind of take away uh, the power of HOAs and force developers to plant native species in uh, different areas. And um, I've also heard terrifying things about the impacts of domesticating elk for meat that could have a uh, disastrous so just things like that that mm-hmm. i think are overlooked are they so they're not on the ballot and these are things you w- wish were on the ballot is what you're saying yeah defund the hoa you know what i mean <laughs> get rid of your lawn <laughs> okay thank thanks for taking time to be with us and for joining us today yeah happy friday happy friday to you uh let's go to another phone call let's go to jonas in Char- charleston south carolina hi jenna well, hey, they just missed the bullet of the uh, last hurricane, so we're quite aware of the impact of climate change, and of course, we're having flooding even on oh boy. non-hurricane days. Yeah, so Sorry of course to hear we that. care about that. But for an extension, the essential challenge of climate change, and the Supreme Court is not allowing the president to regulate then EPA to regulate CO two. What we really need is more funding for the inventors and to build demonstration plants. Or dem- like with advanced biofuel feedstocks, electricity from wood chips and waste products, we can do this, but there's no funding to do it. I mean, the only funding goes to big universities, and um, USDA has a pitiful budget for helping uh, work on. You know, we have an atmosphere in the first place because of green plants. We had a little ice age in the late 1700s because there's so many trees that grew back after the Indians left North America to you know were were driven out. Mm-hmm. So, so you want money for small inventors. No you think small inventors yes. are not being appreciated enough and funded. Well, look in the 90s when we were in the doldrums, right? Where did the, where did the innovation come from? Bill Gates sitting in a hotel room with his friends and <laughs> okay. jobs in a garage, right? Yeah. You know, but without funding to scale up, we can't demonstrate these new technologies we're developing. I'm, I'm developing an energy tuber for food, fuel, and feed, and it gets four and a half times as much ethanol per acre as corn with 10% of the nitrogen and 10% of the water, but okay. can't get funding to build a demonstration plant. All right. Uh, I'm going to have to let you go, Jenna. Thank you for, for voicing your concerns. Uh, Howard, what do you say to that about not enough funding for small invent- investors and inventors? You know, one of the biggest drivers is the farm bill when it comes to the sorts of issues and concerns your listener was just commenting on. And the farm bill starting in 2000, Senator 
bipartisan basis, Senator Dick Luker of Indiana, Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa, began pushing the Biomass Research and Development Act, the purpose of which was to take some of the technologies your listener was describing and provide some research and support for them and help to get things moving. But look at what Congress just did in the Inflation Reduction Act. Tremendous tax credit incentives for solar energy and storage that's really going to boost that and move that forward and move innovation forward. Okay, I can so have that's to... an important step. Okay, that's, we'll talk about more of these important steps after the break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, podcast listeners. Ira here with a simple request. If you're listening to this podcast, learning something, enjoying yourself, please go to sciencefriday.com slash support to make a donation. Our work and this podcast depends on public support from listeners like you. You know that. You're here listening, which means you find our programming valuable. Any amount makes a difference, even two bucks. But the lasting gifts are the ones we can count on, sustaining donations which we can rely on every year. So please go to sciencefriday.com support to make your gift. Again, that's sciencefriday.com slash support. And thanks. You're listening to Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. In case you just joined us, we're looking at all the science issues that might be on your November ballot or might not be and should be. Talking with uh, Rachel Carestis, she is a uh, pandemic response. Uh, uh, she's she, she's, she's uh, thinks a lot about this stuff. Um she uh, and Howard Lerner, she, she, he reports on environmental issues. Uh, both of them are, are here with us uh, talking about some of these issues. Let me, let me go to these questions. Um, Howard, you talked about the Great Lakes regions. Um, what about other regions around the country? What are some of the other environmental issues they may be facing? You know, it's interesting. When you look at sort of the great places that people focus around, um, certainly the Great Lakes. For us Midwesterners, the Great Lakes is where we live, work, and play. Chesapeake Bay, the Everglades. Rachel, you can talk about the Everglades. Uh, Other regions like that, all of them are suffering these days from toxic algae blooms. So where does that come from? That's about agricultural runoff. It's about manure coming from large animal feedlots. It's about excessive fertilizer and phosphorus that's coming from in the Midwest, corn and soy. In uh, Florida, it's coming from the sugar industry. You know, we have a national problem with Western Lake Erie and the Great Lakes, with Chesapeake Bay, with the Everglades, with toxic algae blooms. And that's something that everybody understands. Everybody sees it and goes, yuck. The science is pretty clear. We know what causes it excess phosphorus and we got to get the political will and the policy drivers to do something about it public support is overwhelming in the great lakes and i know the data is pretty compelling as well in florida as well as it is in chesapeake bay so that's an example of where we know from a science standpoint what the problem is we know how to solve it we need the political will to get some serious progress going in multiple regions in the country Rachel, I should have told people that you're the executive director of Science Is Us at the American Association for the Advancement uh, of Science. What do you see as other important issues on the ballot or, or that are not on the ballot? Sure. Well, when it comes to things that are driven by science and evidence that we see in our conversations, particularly with state legislators around the country, we see big conversations about workforce 
development, not just a STEM workforce and healthcare workforce, but that's a hot topic and it's a place where science and evidence can play a role. Um, you know, we were talking about climate, but specifically the, the impacts of extreme weather events from the derechos in Iowa to the wildfires in the West to obviously Hurricane Ian, which we just experienced mm. here in Florida. Um, electric vehicles are a hot topic, which I know you've already talked about uh, during the show today. But you can't avoid um, it. You can, it's a big topic. You can't. It's yeah. a huge topic, and it's it's top of mind pretty much in every state we've talked to. You know, at the recent uh, National Conference of State Legislatures meeting, the session on electric vehicles, you couldn't even get in the room. Wow. It was so packed. Um, and the other thing a lot of state legislators are talking about around the country are mental health issues um, from sort of things related to the pandemic and, you know, the impact on children all the way through, again, the healthcare workforce and the mental health workforce. So those are things, in some cases they are on the ballot, in other cases they're not, but those are kind of the top of mind science-related policy issues that we see pretty much in every state around the country. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the phones. Lots of new phone, phone calls coming in. Uh, let's go to Kevin in Fresno. Hi, Kevin. Uh, hello, how are you? Hi there, go ahead. Well, I'm calling... Um, all these issues intersect so uh, perfectly for where I am. Uh, we're in the San Joaquin River watershed um, below the Sierra uh, Nevada Mountains, um, side of the Big Creek Fire a couple of years ago and ongoing fires. I'm working on a local county, couple of county uh, transportation sales taxes, and our issues are climate resiliency and equity in transportation spending. And we're having a great challenge uh, convincing local um, elected officials that these are important related issues. And uh, workforce development is another um, aspect of this. Uh, what we find is that people want to continue in their old ways of using our local transportation sales tax dollars to leverage state and federal dollars to sprawl and actually building highways up into the wildfire zones um, while ignoring electrification. That's so got to be very frustrating. That's got to be frustrating for you that you can't get them um, to change. I fought this same fight 20 years ago <laughs> when we were arguing for transit-oriented development and other um, further-thinking, forward-thinking um, projects. It's very frustrating. Um, it's almost like one cannot talk about climate change. The activists, the community leaders on the uh, Renewal Committee argued just to get on the committee for, 19, for nine months. Um, it's a conservative county and um, how to break through with data, perhaps yeah. with help, but how to integrate that in a, a narrative that breaks through sort of the current objection to changing our... Now, our state, I should say, is changing our transportation planning priorities in a significant way. The governor is leading tremendously there. Local counties don't want to follow. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for taking time to uh, share your thoughts with us. Good luck out That's there. measure C and measure T. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Rachel, you know, how much of, of, of what we see that people know about is, is from a lack of science education and how science works? Uh, they... I think that is part of it. 
I also think that part of it is, and this is this is on us, on the scientific and engineering community, is that scientists and engineers aren't really trained to communicate outside of our own networks, right? So we're not trained to communicate with policymakers or communicate with the public. And there's a big challenge in doing that. So it's not that you want the average person to have the same knowledge as you know someone with a PhD. That's not going to happen. But what we need to do is find better ways as scientists and engineers to communicate to the public in ways that they can understand. So I think that that burden is really more on our side than it is on the public side. So do you think that scientists then should be going out, and I asked this of Howard also, and, and, and becoming, I guess, proactive in talking to no, people Ira. about these issues, Howard? Let me, let me tell a little story, Ira. We found out from doing some market research here in the Midwest, Big Ten University scientists, and those of you who follow football know that the Big Ten is now more than the Big Ten, but the in-state university scientists are terrific messengers. People trust in Michigan, the scientists from University of Michigan and from Michigan State, and people in Indiana trust the scientists from Indiana University, and so on and so forth. So the Environmental Law and Policy Center, we commissioned 18 Big Ten University scientists and Canadian scientists to do a study on the impact of climate change on the Great Lakes. And it's exactly as Rachel was describing. It's very dense scientific data. And what we did was we worked a lot with the scientists to take the data and make it in a form that was easier to understand for the public. So we got the policy people and the communications people working with the scientists. But people trust you know, the Big Ten University scientists. They're terrific messengers. And when they talked about the effect of extreme weather on the Great Lakes, when they talked about what was causing toxic algae, how to deal with invasive species, People listen and trust it. So it's exactly what Rachel's saying. We need to get the sound science there, and we need to wrap it up in a policy framework that can make a difference, and we need to help explain things in ways that are not dumbed down, that are smart science, but are that are more intelligible to people. But it's you know the local in-state university scientists, people who really trust, they're great messengers. And that's helped move public policy on the Great Lakes in a lot of ways. Mm. As I said earlier, yeah. when it comes to protecting the Great Lakes, it's a bipartisan. It's not even bipartisan. It's a nonpartisan issue. Well, what you're saying is what we're finding out uh, is, is true about talking to people is that people, it's hard to change anyone's mind when their minds are made up, but that people they trust and their friends can help sway those opinions. And that's what you're, that's, you know, the people they trust at their local universities. That's right. And when you look at it, not just as climate change writ large, and we know that's a divisive issue publicly, when you talk about it in terms of the Great Lakes, which everybody in the Midwest loves, then it puts climate change within a frame that people are saying, well, if it's having an impact on Lake Michigan, which is where I go and swim and enjoy the beach and so forth, okay, now I'm feeling a little bit closer to home here. It's becoming real to me. Mm -hmm. It's a different frame for thinking about climate change rather than some of the debates we're having politically that have just become so partisan and so divided. I get it. Let's go to the phones. Lisa in Rochester, New York. Hi, Lisa. 
Hello there. Hi there. Um, well, I want to thank Science Friday for the great job it does in educating those of us who haven't got great science educations or orientations about these issues. And uh, one of the issues I wish uh, uh, we'd think more about funding is, is training our judges in science issues, uh, state and federal level. Most of our judges uh, were educated. Their last science education was before cell phones were invented, and these issues come before them as gatekeepers, um, where they decide whether we're going to even decide the issue or not. Um, so mm. that's what I'd like to see. That's that's a great great topic. What do you think of that, Rachel? Well, it's actually something we have programs on at AAAS, so we agree with you, and it's something that we've been working <laughs> on. Um, just to go back to the previous point for one quick sec second, though, you know, to that question of, of how we change behaviors, you know, we were talking about types of science that were underfunded. Well, there is no branch of science that's more underfunded than the social sciences. And if we really want to figure out how to change behavior, how to connect with people, how to move things forward, we really need to look at social and behavioral sciences. Mm. I want I want to go back. That's an interesting point. I want to go back to uh, something we were talking about earlier. I mentioned abortion earlier. It would be hard to avoid talking about reproductive health care this year and the access to it. And, and several states are looking to either ban or preserve that right. Rachel, is this an issue where you see legislators seeking more information, or has everyone kind of already made up their minds on this? You know, we know it's a hot topic. It's not one that legislators have engaged with us on, so I'm afraid I can't give you details on that conversation. But I do know from some of our colleagues in biological science-specific uh, societies that they've been engaging a lot on that topic with legislators across the country. Howard, do you have any opinions on that? Well, for example, you asked about ballot measures in yes. Michigan. There's a ballot measure coming up um, on questions of reproductive rights. I, I really think most of the polling data, Ira, shows that people are pretty stuck in terms of what they think when it comes to reproductive rights. Now, as technology emerges and as we get to questions of both viability and what's an acceptable procedure and what's not, there may be a room for science to much better inform people of some of the real options and some of the real possibilities. But that's an issue right now in which the country is so divided and in some ways um, where people come down as surprising. I'm thinking about what the vote was on the referendum in Kansas several months ago. I think it was 60-40. Uh, if you will, more on the reproductive rights side. And that really opened up a lot of eyes. So you're going to see more ballot measures uh, coming on reproductive rights, like in Michigan this fall. And I think increasingly we're going to see ballot measures moving forward on climate change if state legislatures don't step up and act uh, the way they're doing in Illinois, California, and a number of other states, probably Minnesota coming next. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. We're talking about science politics, what's on the ballot this year with Rachel Crestes and Howard Lerner. Uh, just to pick up on that issue uh, that, that Howard was talking about, Rachel, overall, how, how is severe weather like Hurricane Ian, like wildfires, touching policy interests around the country? I mean, it's, it's a top topic everywhere around the country. And I think that this is one of those places where the language matters, right? In some states, they're talking about it in cli as climate change. In other states, they're talking about it as extreme weather. 
uh, or disaster related things, but everybody's talking about it. And how to solve these issues, how to uh, create resilience, and all of the things related to that. I mean, there's conversations happening pretty much in every state, yeah. depending yeah. on what you know what the weather event right. may be. And let me go to Ryan in California, who's going to touch on this issue. As someone who lives in California, knows about droughts and fires. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ryan. Um, how you doing? Hi there. So, um, something I'd like to hear on the ballot, um, and just talk about generally more, is a focus on the entire hydrological cycle. So, many towns all across the United States, the hydrologic cycle has been broken. Uh, and since you mentioned California out here, you hear about fire and drought often. You also hear about water rights a lot. And conversation often is downstream-centric, so focus on end users and Really, this water comes from all the way up in the mountains and slowly makes its way down to the ocean. And we tend to manage it very poorly. So, almost like it's a plumbing problem, culverts and subversion. When it, when it does rain and the water leaves the landscape very quickly. So, um, many of the problems we're talking about that are in the conversation today, such as climate change. Uh, drought, fire, a lot of these can be mitigated with a healthy hydrological cycle. Uh, so I just want to yeah, go ahead. Ryan, do you find that local politicians talk about these issues a lot as things that they need to take care of and be on their radar screen? No, um, well, not, not a, I don't know if they, the politicians really have a great understanding of the complete hydrological cycle. And I think that's probably what part of the issue is hmm. yeah okay thank you for taking time to talk with us and good luck out there thanks Sarah. um uh, yeah uh, i have a tweet from a farmland owner i'm going to go see if i can read it right off the tweet it says many conservation related issues and candidates who can make a difference on the ballot um support them on november 8th and support regulations for no-till and cover crops on corn and soybean land in the upper Midwest. Uh, Howard, you have the last word on that. Good things to vote on? Those are good things to vote on. Look, when it comes to water, the public's ahead of the politicians. And if you do the polling in the Midwest, whether it's in the Toledo area around Lake Erie or southwest Wisconsin around the Mississippi River and the Wisconsin River, it's all about the water. Yeah. And doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat or young or old or racial divides or gender. People need safe, clean water. And this is one where the public is saying, we got to take some actions on this. And the politicians aren't there yet. I think we're going to hear much, much more about water going forward. And that's going to become a ballot box issue. Rachel Carestes, Howard Lerner, thank you both for taking time to be with us today. We're not going to uh, be taking your thoughts on this one in order, but we have a little ballot scavenger hunt for you. Visit sciencefriday.com slash ballot to explore how science is appearing on your and your neighbor's state's ballots this November. sciencefriday.com slash ballot. After the break, this year's batch of Nobels and research into bears and diabetes. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. This week, one of the rituals of science featuring the iconic early morning phone call. I first thought this is probably an elaborate prank done by people in my group. 
but then it sounded a little bit too serious to me. So I sort of accepted the facts. That's Dr. Savante Pabo. He's the director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig and winner of this year's Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. The prize committee awarded the prize, quote, for his discoveries concerning the genomes of extinct hominins and human evolution. What that means? He found that genes from ancient Neanderthals reside in people today. So what we do is to look for the genetic material for DNA from people who have lived here long before us and try to see how they are related to us and how they are related to other forms of humans that were also here, such as Neanderthals. He's been a guest on this program several times over the years. Back in 2017, I talked with Dr. Pabo about his work on trying to pin down the answer to the question, how much of our DNA comes from Neanderthal ancestors? He spoke to me by phone. How many people are descendants of Neanderthals then? Well, so everybody whose genetic roots are outside Africa are partly descended from Neanderthals. So there are billions of people in the order of six, seven billion people who actually carry parts of the genome of Neanderthals today. And how did, how did we come to that uh, 2% number and then raising it? Back in 2014, we published a high-quality Neanderthal genome, but that genome came from southern Siberia, so very far east in the distribution of Neanderthals. So we were, of course, aware that that genome was not really close geographically to where Neanderthals probably met early modern humans when they came out of Africa. So what we have now done is to sequence the genome from southern Europe, from Croatia, that is also closer in time to when that interbreeding might have happened. It's between 50 to 65,000 years old. And indeed, we can show that this individual from which its genome comes was quite substantially closer related to the Neanderthals that interbred with modern humans than the Siberian one. And that results in that we can identify more pieces, more fragments of DNA in people today that come from Neanderthals in the order of 10-15% more than we had earlier. That's in the order of 4 million more base pairs per individual hmm. that we identify. Are, are we more interested then in the Neanderthals because we want to know about them or because what they can tell us about who we are? Well, I would say that I would be interested in both things. Of course, it is quite interesting to know what aspects of our physiology today derive from Neanderthals, in what ways do they live on in us, if you like. But these variants may also allow us, at least in the future, to tell us more about what they were like. Hmm. So, so how is it that uh, just two genetic sequences, we're talking about two Neanderthals now, tell us so much about a whole species of hominid? Well, um, of course, that is because when you have a whole genome from an individual, you have, of course, two, two versions of that genome, the version that individual inherited from the mother and from the father. So we, when we are sequenced to high quality now, so we see both chromosomes in an individual, we have four genomes in reality. And we can then 
get a fairly good idea, particularly when they come from different parts of the distribution, uh, geographic distribution like this, of the variation in the species. Mm -hmm. How come you were able to get such a good, high-quality sequence? Well, so we have looked through a lot of bones. So from this site in, in Croatia, this cave, we have analyzed 19 different bone fragments to identify the ones that have the most Neanderthal DNA, but at the same time the lowest proportion of bacterial DNA in the bone from soil bacteria that lived in a bone when it was in the ground. So this particular bone, there were parts of it that up to 10% of the DNA actually were of Neanderthal origin. And then we use techniques that we have developed in our lab over, over 20 years now to extract as efficiently as possible the DNA, process it in a way that we can feed it into sequencing machines, and then map it to the human genome, see where these short fragments we get will mm. fit in the genome. Mm. Dr. Dr. Pabo, what are you working on now? Do you have anything in the pipeline that you're sequencing? So one direction is to try to go back further in time. So the oldest sort of hominin remains we've been able to get tiny amounts of DNA from is over 400,000 years old. That's some early Neanderthal ancestor from Spain. So we're trying to get more DNA there. And the other direction is to try to understand what's special about modern human genomes. What are those variants that made it possible for us and not the Neanderthals to develop technology and culture that allowed us to expand and colonize the whole world and compete mm -hmm. so successfully and detrimentally for, in the, from the point of view of these other hominins that became extinct. On Monday, Dr. Pabo compared his work to an archaeological dig. What really drives our work is really curiosity, I would say. It is just as if you do an archaeological excavation to find out about the past. We sort of make excavations in the human genome. What my own group and my biggest interest is actually to study the genetic differences between present-day people and our closest relatives and Neanderthals, particularly genetic changes that exist in everybody today or almost everybody. And then that may be important for why modern humans became so no numerous, formed big societies and so on. Dr. Svante Pabo, winner of this year's Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. Congratulations to all of this year's winners. We hope to talk with more of them in the weeks ahead. I'm Ira Flato, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. About 1 in 10 Americans have diabetes. Most of them are type 2, the kind that develops when cells become resistant to insulin. Wouldn't it be cool if we could just flip a switch so those cells become sensitive to insulin again? Well, that's pretty much what bears do, and it helps them get through a long hibernation. So, of course, researchers are looking at how bears do this, and if we might apply it to treating diabetes in humans. Here to tell us more about this and other grizzly superpowers is Dr. Blair Perry. He's a postdoc studying genomics at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much for having me. So nice to have you. Okay, so before we get into your research, I want to know why is bear hibernation so cool? Why do you want to study it? Yeah, so bear hibernation is actually a lot more complicated and interesting than a lot of people realize. Um, so, you know, a lot of 
children's books and pop culture make you think that bears are simply just going to sleep for the entire winter, but in reality, there's a lot of really interesting and extreme changes to their physiology and their metabolism that allow them to do that. Pretty much every cell, every tissue in the bear's body is changing how it processes nutrients to enable them to survive these long periods without access to food. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those adaptations has to do with insulin, right? And bears can turn it on and off. Yeah. So when we um, look at adipose or fat tissue in hibernating bears, we see that it becomes resistant to insulin. Like you said earlier, this is typically in humans kind of an early sign of progression towards type 2 diabetes. But in bears, they become resistant to insulin every winter. And then in the spring, when they're returning to kind of their active normal bear activity level, they regain sensitivity to insulin. So we think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're relying on burning fat during the hibernation months. Um, So in the summer and especially in the fall, they essentially devote all their time and energy to gaining as much weight as possible, putting on as much pounds as they can so that they can burn that fat for energy and survive the winter. And typically insulin actually inhibits the ability for adipose tissue to burn that fat. So by turning off sensitivity to it, we think that it kind of boosts their ability to utilize all that fat they've gained to essentially power the body during hibernation. That really is very interesting. And you studied insulin resistance in the bears, trying to figure out how they do it. And did you find an answer? We think we're getting close. Um, So this study that we did recently was aiming to identify potential proteins or molecules in the blood of bears that may control their ability to become insulin resistant and to regain that sensitivity in the spring. So by stimulating cultures of bear adipose tissue cells or fat cells in the lab with serum from different seasons during the summer, during the winter when they're hibernating, and by comparing the differences in the proteins present in the blood serum between these different seasons, we were able to identify eight proteins that we think are actually really important for driving this because they are abundant at different levels in different times during the year. So these eight proteins that are driving this, are any of them found in humans? Yeah, in fact, all eight of these proteins are proteins that are known to be present in humans. And a subset of these, I think three specifically, are actually known in humans to be involved in the reception and processing and response to insulin. We think that, you know, perhaps bears are using these proteins in a slightly different way. Maybe they are having slightly different changes to the bear's um, cellular activity than what we see in humans. And so by identifying where that difference is in bears, essentially unlocking this unique adaptation in bears, um, we might be able to, for example, stimulate similar changes in cellular activity or synthesize similar proteins for humans that might be able to, for example, help to them to regain sensitivity to insulin if they're in this pre-diabetic insulin-resistant state. And so how similar are humans to bears if we're trying to compare stuff like proteins and genes? Well, so, you know, bears and, and humans obviously look and act and you know, are very different at, at one level. But when we actually look at the, the genes that are present, the proteins that are present, and typically how these genes and proteins kind of act to do basic functions like metabolism and things like that, there's actually a really high degree of similarity. So pretty much every gene that you see in a bear has some related version in a human and vice versa. But oftentimes these genes will have experienced changes during the evolution of these different species that allow them to essentially do things slightly differently than they might in a different species. 
That's fascinating. I mean, I normally think of bears as being outdoor creatures, right? Where did you get all the blood samples to do this stuff? Right. So we're actually very fortunate to work with the Washington State University Bear Center, which is a one of a kind facility, the only kind um, like it in the world in Pullman, Washington, that has a captive population of bears that are often bears that were getting into trouble in national parks, things like that, and had to be moved. And at this facility, we can study these bears year round. We can take small, non-invasive, non-damaging blood samples and tissue samples and really have this unprecedented and really unique and exciting access to studying all aspects of bear biology that normally would be you know, very dangerous if you're doing this in wild bears for the researchers and for the bears potentially. Um, and oftentimes, you know, frankly, impossible. For example, it's really hard to find and get tissue samples from hibernating bears in the wild. You've got grizzlies cooperating with you? <laughs> we do, yes. So as you might expect, they're very, very food motivated. So, um, And they're also very, very smart, which is something that a lot of people don't realize. So they pick up really quick on you know things that we want them to do by you know rewarding them with treats, which in this case is actually honey. So the children's books did get that part right. They do love honey. <laughs> but for example, they'll come up to the edge of their enclosure. They'll put their paw through a little opening so that we can take a small blood sample, just a tiny little ping prick to them. And then they get a nice big dose of, of honey water, which they absolutely love. Wow. You talk here about the insulin resistance in bears and what we can learn from that. What else can bears possibly tell us about human health? Right. So pretty much any aspect, any tissue that you look at during hibernation is typically doing something that's pretty remarkable and pretty um, different than what you would expect to see in a human. So for example, they aren't sleeping the entire winter. They do lay, lay around a lot. You know, they're relatively lazy during this time, but we don't see any degradation of muscle tissue or, you know, loss of muscle tone. And in humans, for example, if someone was injured or had to be in bed for a long period of time, that's a really a very detrimental thing in that you see their, their muscle tones start to degrade. Bears don't experience any of those harmful uh, losses of muscle. So that's one aspect that we're interested. Really? Yeah, exactly. They, um, their heart rate decreases um, slightly during hibernation. So we're interested also in understanding how they're able to you know, maintain normal body functions with this decreased cardiac output. They don't urinate or defecate for the entirety of hibernation, which in humans would obviously put you in a pretty uncomfortable and pretty dangerous situation. So really, if you just look at a hibernating bear, pick a tissue, pick a part of their body, there's probably something really interesting going on there that in some way or another parallels something in humans typically related to you know, a disease or some negative condition in terms of human health. Is there anything about the hibernating process itself and the changes that go on in the bear as you speak that might be applicable to hibernating people? Yeah, so that's not something that my research is specifically getting at right now, but it is something that has been discussed and thought about in, in the hibernation research world. For example, there have been discussions about ways that in the future we might be able to apply our understanding of hibernation in other mammals to for example, help humans make very long space journeys and things like that, where you know you might be able to essentially induce hibernation in humans so that they can go these long periods of time traveling to Mars or beyond or something like that. And you know, obviously, I think we're still a little ways away from that. Um, but there's some real, I think, interesting and exciting applications to trying to, you know, instead of look at specific aspects of hibernation and understand how we can apply that to humans, trying to essentially apply the whole thing to humans 
and, you know, like you said, enable humans to hibernate in a way similar to the bears. I see that we have barely scratched the surface <laughs> of all the things to be learned. Dr. Blair Perry is a postdoc studying genomics at Washington State University based in Pullman, Washington. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. One final note, it's World Space Week and people all over the earth are celebrating as they learn more about the universe. We're exploring a little bit closer to home. For five weeks, starting October 19th, we're hosting Sun Camp for families and educators with kids aged five to nine. There'll be conversations with sun scientists, hands-on activities to try on your own, and yes, it's all free. To learn more and sign up, visit our website at sciencefriday.com slash suncamp. That's sciencefriday.com slash suncamp. And that about wraps up this week's show. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato.